I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today, we've got a number of topics to, uh, to discuss. Um, first off, you know, we had a tweet here by Paul Tudor Jones. If you don't know who Paul Tudor Jones is, he's an extremely well-renowned uh, investor. And, you know, here, here he is kind of chiming in on, on all things Bitcoin. Again, I'm not an expert on Bitcoin by any stretch. It's just with a market cap of $500 billion, it's, it's the wrong market cap in a world where you've got $90 trillion worth of uh, equity market cap um, and God knows how many trillions of fiat currency, et cetera. So it's the wrong market cap, for instance, relative to gold, which is eight or nine trillion. The, the Bitcoin reminds me so much of the internet stocks of 1999 because the internet was in its infancy. No one knew how to value it because of the world of possibility that lay ahead. So it's 1999 for Bitcoin. This, this tweet says he's, you know, he's getting into Ethereum, which is a, you know, it's another uh, type of coin that you can get. There's all these kind of alt currencies now. That's what this guy's tweet is referencing. They're, uh, Bitcoin is a gateway drug. These 1% allocations from funds are going to increase in size and diversity into other crypto you know, altcoins, Ethereum. So we have these uh, ICO concepts, right? Uh, initial coin offering. So all these kind of tech startups try to raise, you know, money by doing these ICOs, which were, you know, unregulated. Um, some startups have gotten in trouble for doing that, you know, as a way to basically try and fundraise uh, via <clears throat> creating their own currency, alt currency. So, you know, is Bitcoin a platform is, is, is a question that, um, you know, I get asked all the time. And, you know, the, the short answer is the way you can think about this universe here is think about, it actually goes back to what Paul Tudor Jones is saying here, back to 1999, right? Where you have the internet coming out and, um, you, it was built on a protocol, right? On kind of the HTTP protocol, right? Which is this mechanism to help websites connect um, and exchange information. And, um, you know, you can, you can have a browser, type in a URL, and now you can go and visit that, right? There is this kind of underlying infrastructure of, of Bitcoin um, built on the, on the blockchain, right? And the blockchain is kind of that, that decentralized pipe. Um, it's this kind of decentralized ledger. So really, is blockchain a platform is, is probably the better question. And the short answer would be no. The short answer is that, it, you know, it's really kind of like a decentralized pipe, right? There's a ledger and Alex can have a, a, an account on that ledger. And it says Alex owns, you know, uh, 10 Bitcoins. Or, or, or whatever those assets are, right? It could be a variety of different assets. And um, there's a framework for how that information gets updated, but uh, multiple services need to be built on top of blockchain, on top of whatever you know the, those different currencies are to deliver the full package, just like HTTP, right? It's a protocol and, but you, and, and, you can create your website, but there's a lot of services that need to go around that, just like having an internet browser, right? 
just like you need, let's say you use Coinbase to actually buy and sell your, your Bitcoin. So you have all these different applications that can plug into the blockchain, right? That I can use these different apps to buy and sell uh, Bitcoin if I wanted to, right? Um, and that all is being mapped back to my special account that's stored in the blockchain. Um, the really nice thing about this is that as you see a common, um, a common topic on this show is increasing regulation, a lack of freedom for users to operate on tech monopoly platforms in general. Right? We see this more and more so getting uh, clamped down. We see freedom of speech getting restricted. We see just our civil liberties being encroached upon literally from uh, just about every direction these days. The nice thing about the blockchain and then Bitcoin and other alt currencies is that you actually do have an unregulated uh, currency. And so when you see um, cancel culture come, you actually have a mechanism, right? If your payments are being cut off by MasterCard and Visa and PayPal, and the list goes on and on and on, um, you're actually seeing a number of businesses that uh, are being vilified for whatever reason and have their payment gateways shut off to them. Uh, the only kind of way they can survive is by operating on you know, these alt currencies, Bitcoin being the, the biggest example, uh, but living on the blockchain, right? This kind of decentralized network. Um, so it is really interesting. Over the long term, I would tend to agree with what uh, uh, PTJ is saying, Paul Tudor Jones is saying on just the, the, the long term trajectory of Bitcoin. Not to say that right now it'd be a great time to buy in. Bitcoin's literally at all time highs. I think it's close to maybe 20,000. Maybe it's in the 19,000s now. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I think, I think long-term you are going to see more institutional money get into, uh, get into these Bitcoin and all their alt currencies. And generally you will just have more demand, uh, be created and there's limited supply. There's only a certain amount of Bitcoins that can be created every year. There's Bitcoin mining. There's a whole kind of ecosystem around this. So long-term, I'd say you're just going to have more demand. You're, you got restricted supply. And, uh, and, and so it would make sense to me. Couldn't tell you exactly if this is the right price. It does seem like a very high price. In general, prices are very high. I'm going to touch on that with some of the IPOs that are coming out here. Um, Airbnb, DoorDash, we've got others that are now starting to release some information around uh, what their valuation is going to be. But in general, we just have very high prices in the markets. So next topic is Section 230. It is now rumored not rumored. Um, basically, uh, what's happened is that President Trump has vowed to veto the N NDAA, the National Defense Appropriations Act. And I guess every year this act needs to be signed and it basically gives the military their budget. And he has said that if, if Congress doesn't put language in there to strike down Section 230, he's going to veto it. We've been talking about it on the show, just the level of tech censorship that is going on is, is frankly um, abhorrent. It is completely unacceptable. Um, and they have crossed this invisible line, and now clearly there's no way to come back from it. And although, you know, if you'd watched the show a month or two ago, I would have said, I did say, um, getting rid of Section 230 would actually cause, would actually help the tech monopolies and and hurt the tech startups because even your 
you know, right wing kind of content platforms like Gab, they'll say, we don't, we want 230 in place, right? Um, they're saying, don't get rid of 230. But, and, and the reason why, you know, I said on the show that 230 would actually help the tech monopolies is because the smaller tech competitors will naturally um, have less resources to comply with the new legal environment. And because now these tech businesses will have, will have less of a liability shield from the content that is posted to their site, um, ultimately that could really hurt smaller tech startups, you know, the Pinterest of the world and, and your smaller tech companies, even Pinterest is now public, but, you know, um, there's a lot of kind of smaller, even just a few hundred million dollars in valuation. Just you don't have a lot of spare, sparse, you have sparse resources. You don't have extra resources hanging around like the large tech monopolies do. And so if 230 goes away, presumably now you could have a lot more litigation, lawsuits. You got to invest in more compliance and, and just more things that weren't on the product roadmap to um, accelerate growth. We saw this with GDPR as a great example of this, right? Of, the, of Google and Facebook winning because of GDPR when in fact, GDPR was supposed to actually kind of um, handicap or, or, or penalize Google and Facebook. And it actually hurt everyone else, but helped the big tech monopolies. So um, what would happen in a, in a uh, post-Section 230 environment? How would it actually all shake out? And so I think we, you know, we had Tim Kendall on, uh, one of the early, early guys at Facebook, and he went on to Pinterest. Um, and you know he's in that uh, uh, Netflix documentary about the problem with content platforms, social networks like Facebook, really kind of just feeding this incendiary content, much of it fake, and actually the fake content actually performing better on the platform's algorithms, right? Because it gets more engagement out of its audience. This kind of very abrasive, triggering content, right? And how that's a real problem. And now he's kind of come out, he's testified in front of Congress about it, uh, you know, around that matchmaking algorithm specifically. We went very deep into that topic. In that environment with no 230, theoretically, a Facebook, a Google, and even an Amazon would now be liable uh, for fake information that is being published and distributed on the platform. What would be interesting to see is how, how do they handle this around fake information, right? Which now they are going to be liable for. Uh, whereas before, you know, there's kind of here nor there. Technically, the publishers, let's say the media is responsible for publishing fake information, and they can be held liable for it. Um, doesn't happen a lot, but it can happen and it has happened. And could continue to happen. But again, the media companies don't have a lot of money, so they don't really have the biggest target on their back. Thanks to Facebook and Google have basically destroyed the media company's business model, as we also spoke about that with Tim. So presumably, it would, it would force the large content platforms, Twitter included, theoretically, any content platform and every content platform to have to have much stricter uh, controls on what content is published on the platform. And wow, I mean, there's a lot of implications for that. Net, net, do you get a better environment at the end of the day? I don't know. 
it will certainly change things. Uh, I don't know if it'll be for better or for worse. Certainly, I think you'll see Facebook and Google and, and Twitter and any of these big content platforms that have a lot of money, that have a big target on their back, need to reassess um, how they handle this. But presumably, if they're caught distributing information, which is, you know, fake and, 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 and you know, committing libel and, and fraudulent and all, you know, whatever the existing laws are that you could essentially sue a media company if, if they're spreading um, fake information about someone or defamation lawsuits, right? Then now the tech companies would also have similar uh, liability in the distribution of that content. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out, but I do think it is a very real possibility that um, that is the environment we're operating in. And, you know, if anything, the best case scenario, I would say the best case scenario would be to try to carve out liability protections for smaller tech companies. I think that would still be the case, right? Just think about all the controls you'd have to put into place, all the people, all the human filtering and software tools you'd have to put into place to properly you know, comply with some new standard, right? You know, there'd have to be some kind of benchmark of performance industry norm, right? To say the information is flagged as being fraudulent or defaming or, you know, hits a threshold and the platform has to take it down and they've got to build in all these internal controls. It's a, it would be a gargantuan effort and ideally something that could actually help level the playing field if the burden of that is predominantly uh, put onto the large tech monopolies, the large tech content platforms, and not the smaller ones. I don't think that would come in this first wave. If this thing is struck down, Section 230, then it just goes away. But again, you know, this is Congress and they write the laws. So they could, say, they could in negotiation, if the, you know, kind of put some carve outs in there. I'm sure big tech is trying to get a carve out <laughs> for themselves rather than the small tech companies, right? They don't really have a voice on Capitol Hill. That's the irony in all of this. But nonetheless, that would be the ideal, I think, is to have a carve out for the smaller tech players. Interestingly enough, I actually think there is also a segue into this around products for Amazon, right? Um, we've We've spoken before on just fakes and counterfeit products on Amazon. And again, Amazon does have some liability shield from 230 around the similar dynamic. Um, you've got contents, you've got products on your site. Didn't come, it's not being sold by Amazon, but a third-party seller is selling something that's counterfeit. Now, I do think it could hold Amazon's feet much closer to the flame if they're being held liable uh, for fraudulent or counterfeit products being sold by third-party sellers on Amazon. Very interesting because as we've reported on Amazon, they pre-pandemic had almost 50% of their top 10,000 sellers were, guess what? Chinese manufacturers. And I can tell you right now, Chinese manufacturers don't always produce genuine products. A lot of counterfeits in those products. And I think that would be a real, real problem also for Amazon, interestingly enough, on that front. Etsy, for example, is, is fine because it's all kind of these craft kind of homemade goods. So they would actually do very well. eBay, I think, also has a, a, somewhat of a counterfeit problem as well. We're going to be following this. The media isn't taking this seriously. And here's the irony with all of this. 
Because it is Trump saying this, the media is immediately against it. The irony in all of this is that 230, striking down 230, actually helps the media, right? Like before everything got so partisan and crazy and political in this country, the media hated Facebook and Google. So the irony in all of this is that if, you, if, you, if, if the media is actually able to kind of not be partisan, which I know it's very hard for them to do that, and be objective, they would actually say, wow, by getting rid of 230, <laughs> this is actually really good. We should get rid of 230 because Facebook and Google are killing us and we need every help, every, every bit of help that we can get. Australia is trying to force Facebook and Google pay the uh, media uh, firms in Australia money to to you know to to have that as they're as they're distributing their um, their stories through Facebook and Google. So you know all of this is really getting to the crux here of saying you know there's laws and precedent around um, liability, around defamation, around you know being truthful and and reporting correct information. A lot of that has gone out the window for the media for a number of reasons. As we spoke about in depth with Tim, media doesn't really make any money anymore. So, how do you get you know blood out of a rock? Um, you don't. And B, you know the 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 bigger problem is really that the distribution mechanism these these content platforms, Facebook and Google, they're actually geared to disseminate fake information. Fake information performs better in the algorithm than true information does because fake information is more triggering more incendiary, gets more engagement, and the algos like it better. So the media companies have learned that. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there is a very big problem here. This is kind of a, a, a blunt mechanism to try and solve it. And then it will create other um, issues if you just wholesale get rid of 230. But hey, I mean, considering um, how aggressive just censorship has gotten in general and all these other things, net, net, yeah, some, you know, something's got to change here. So uh think let's roll the dice see what happens uh facebook and google certainly have not done them helped themselves out by any means ironically despite all of that facebook is announcing a billion dollar acquisition of customer facebook to acquire startup customer okay what does customer do here's customer transform how customers and agents interact i think this is a play around them getting into commerce so them really helping give business tools to business customers that are going to sell products through, say, Instagram, for example, right? And what they're seeing is that these business these businesses need tools to help interact with customers on Instagram, on WhatsApp, on uh, Facebook, et cetera. And customer has that infrastructure to kind of provide that customer service. You can see there are different things here. Customer service, uh, CRM for customer service. It's all around kind of providing businesses with the tools to better communicate with their customers um, in, a, in a B2C environment primarily, right? Uh, transform how customers and agents interact. This is a minuscule acquisition for them. It's a billion dollars. Uh, Facebook just kind of shrugged it off. Yeah, we're buying customer. It's great. Yeah, don't worry about the price. But again, a testament to really show Facebook is very serious about monetizing social commerce. And um, where's Pinterest in all of this, right? What is Pinterest doing? I mean, just it, it is astonishing to me 
how um, Facebook is the one still leading the charge in these areas of social commerce. And you have so many people missing the ball on this, which is a massive opportunity. Just look to China if, uh, if you want to see how big it is. More interesting stuff here is, I mean, it's funny, right? Both of these companies, Facebook and Google, right in the crosshairs of the regulators. And you just wouldn't even, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know it by, by following their actions here. So Google spars with Barry Diller's IAC on marketing practices. Alphabet unit considers penalties after they're saying IAC had some funny business. Allegedly. Google's clearly biased because um, they compete directly with IACs. As we've spoken about IAC owning Expedia and a number of other platform businesses. Google has taken hundreds of millions of dollars from us to advertise and distribute these products in the Chrome store. There's nothing new here. Google has used their position to reduce our browser business to the last small corner of the internet, which they're now seeking to squash. If Google went after IAC, this would be, frankly, the best thing that could happen to IAC. The reason why is because this is just what, what the DOJ did against Google. Again, we spoke about this, we've spoken about this. Complete red herring. Google, I mean, DOJ completely missing the ball on how to go after tech platform monopolies in the United States. The EU is well on their way. I like what Ms. Vestager, head of kind of the EU antitrust, is doing over there. And the point is that platforms, they take advantage of their producers, of their suppliers first, not the consumer. IAC Expedia is a producer. They're a supplier to Google Search. And in this case, the, the Google Chrome app store and, and plugins for the Google Chrome browser. When platforms get to monopoly dominant status, they vertically integrate, most of them. Um, eBay has not, for example, and eBay hasn't had amazing, insane growth. But to get that amazing, insane growth, you most of the time are going to vertically integrate and compete more aggressively against your suppliers. I think we're going to see this with Instacart. I think Instacart's going to roll out a model where they directly compete against their grocery store producers and suppliers, right? Vertical integration. It's a classic platform playbook once you get to enough scale. So Google's obviously done this. Um, the DOJ bozos completely disregarded that um, vertical integration and them competing against suppliers. I mean, there's a myriad of evidence. The House Judiciary Committee documented it very well. But of course, the DOJ decides to completely ignore that focus on a case that's five years old that the EU tried and now has admittedly said, yeah, we kind of messed up on that. Okay, have fun, DOJ. But the great thing about this is if, if Google actually did sue IAC or, or not sue, but just take penal penalizing action against IAC and the, the kind of app store situation here, maybe, just maybe, DOJ would wake up, smell the coffee and say, oh, Maybe we should go investigate Google for vertically integrating and competing unfairly against, guess who? Their suppliers. As the, as the EU has been doing, as Alex has been telling us to do for years. Otherwise, um, the, the DOJ is just completely asleep at the wheel. So I actually think if Google did do this, it would be great. It would be net-net, long-term, mid-to-long-term, be great for IAC because hopefully now it would just be a, a, a way that the, now, because you have the DOJ actively pursuing this case against Google, hopefully someone would say, whoa, look at this. Look what they're doing to IAC. Maybe we should, you know, uh, roll out a case over here and, uh, and, and, and try to head this thing off. Maybe. So 
Last one here is Metro, or second to last one is Metro Mile. Um, if you don't know what Metro Mile is, it is a pay per mile auto insurer. And it looks like they're going to IPO via SPAC. We got our boy uh, from Social Capital here, Chamath, who's kind of leading this pipe. Um, they've got $160 million. They're looking to get, I think, $350 million all in from going public. They're saying they got a $1.3 billion valuation, I guess. Estimates are that they have sub $200 million in revenue. Wikipedia, I think, pegs them around like $140 million in revenue, something like that. So what does Metro Mile do? Basically, they give you this, uh, it's called like an ODB2 device. You plug that into your car. Um, it has these standardized ports. Every car has them in the U.S. You plug this hardware device into that port, and now it can get your mileage. It can get different vehicle information, right? And then, boom, it pipes that stuff up to the cloud. It tracks how much you're driving and other stats about how you drive. And then it gives you this pay-per-mile insurance, right? So the idea is that you're not just paying for a blanket insurance, car insurance policy. You're getting something that's customized to your driving habits. And then you can ideally pay less for the same level of coverage, right? Because it's just saying, well, if you only drive 300 miles a month, then why do you need to pay kind of full rack rate um, what everyone else was paying? So in 2018 was the last actual fundraise on the books for these guys uh, for Metro Mile. They raised about a $90 million, $90 million and my sources have it around at about a $500 million valuation two years ago. Um, in, in summer, two and a half years ago, in summer of 2018. So now you got them, you know, um, like 120%, 130% would be the goal two, two and a half years later with this IPO. You know, the markets are great right now to IPO. Just everything is up, up, up. But the price on this thing, right? So Geico obviously is, 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 a, is a good comp, um, but Geico is is owned by Berkshire Hathaway. So, you know, you can't get access to it. You got Progressive. Progressive Insurance also does, you know, predominantly car, um, uh, RV, you know, this kind of boat insurance. $54 billion market cap. They are doing a roughly $40 billion in revenue. So even if, even if um, we're generous and we say Metro Mile is doing $250 million in revenue, and they've got a 5x revenue multiple. They, I think they might be lower though in revenue. But um, 5x revenue multiple compared to these public comps where, you know, if you can get a 2x revenue multiple, you're doing really, really well. So there's a very nice premium on this business. It's not a platform business. There really is no kind of network effect here. They are strengthening more partnerships. Metro Mile did just get a partnership with Ford, for example. So you know, they're, they're getting better kind of go to market. They're getting in front of customers. They've been doing Tesla for years. Um, now they're getting in with Ford and other OEMs. So they're building up the business nicely. Um, not a platform business. Does have a nice premium on it. You are seeing some of the other auto um, insurance companies try to, to launch a a competitive product to Metro Mile. Uh, but clearly Metro Mile has been able to still have some pretty good growth here. To me, you know, maybe you have one of these really big laggard auto insurance companies. I mean, these are big companies, right? Buy a Metro Mile eventually. If they're just too far behind to catch up, they're just getting beaten and they say, okay, I'll bite the bullet. 
um, I could see that being a, a, a likely outcome, not necessarily immediately, but sometime down the road. Um, you just, you, I don't think you've kind of seen the competitors play as aggressively in this space as one would have expected or, or certainly liked to see. Um, so last topic is, uh, <clears throat> um, China getting bolder. There's a reason why Appleco does not work with Chinese companies. There's a reason why we don't work with Russian companies. We don't work with communist totalitarian regimes. Um, we have a mission and a vision to help uh, educate the world, um, help bring the, the world and society into a platform economy, into a modern economy. And platform businesses, by and large, even though the, we talk about these tech monopolies taking advantage of producers and all this kind of stuff, by and large, platforms, even the tech monopolies, do create a lot of positive value for society. Even Amazon, right, where we say they're just crushing these retailers, they're, you know, they're taking advantage of, of sellers and all this. Even Amazon, they are helping a lot of sellers at the same time, right? For example... Their recent stat with kind of the Black Friday stat was that they said over $5 billion um, was spent on products from small businesses, right? And so I think these kind of smaller third-party sellers, right? $5 billion. So there definitely are, and, and I'm not saying it's okay, um, but there definitely are plenty of examples that once you get that dominant tech monopoly platform status, you do tar- start to take advantage of your producers and your sellers. So. Not dismissing that, but again, there is also a lot of positive, okay? And I think select regulation, as we talk about on the show, can be a great mechanism to try and kind of rein in suppliers getting taken advantage of. And hopefully we'll, we'll see the EU really lead the charge on that. Sad to say the US isn't doing it, but um, hope, you know, someone's got to do it. So you know, we're going to continue to follow Ms. Vestager on that path. But when you have a dominant tech platform monopoly business, coming out of a communist totalitarian regime, all that kind of upside equation is, it no longer balances. It no longer makes sense, right? Um, That upside to small businesses or whatever that use case is, enabling creativity, right? This show being out on YouTube and all these places, all that goes out the window. And now the negatives very much so outweigh the positives. Although there still are positives for what what Ant Financial has been able to do to bring, you know, digital currency into rural China, for example. A lot of positives. However, they can run whatever they want to do, however they want to do it inside of China. But when it comes to Applico working and where we want to do business, we're not going to do it. When it comes to this show and um, how we view Chinese tech monopolies expanding internationally, not a good situation. What has happened to these Chinese tech monopolies is they have been mechanisms of the CCP to not only enforce and impose their will abroad, but unfortunately do it at home too. And you see that in the nanny state that is now 21st century China. It's literally out of a book. You 
say it's 19, it's 1984 on steroids where everything is watched, everything is monitored. If you're a nurse in December talking about Corona on WeChat, your family is now going to get a visit by the police and they're going to get reprimanded or they might get arrested. You're not allowed to talk about that. And this is not a good scenario when you see the government, totalitarian communist government, uh, notably, using these tech platform monopolies as basically extensions of, uh, of the CCP's agenda. Not good. So, we continue to track what's going on in this arena. And now what we see is that JD Health uh, raises $3.5 billion from Hong Kong. More than 120 companies have raised four, over $44 billion through IPOs and secondary listings in Hong Kong this year, the highest in the past 10 years. How did that happen? A lot of these are tech companies. Ant, although they called off their IPO because they spoke out against the government in a surprise move by Jack Ma. Completely bizarre. IPO completely called off because the guy said not so nice things. Why now does Hong Kong get all these listings and not Shanghai? I'll tell you why. Hong Kong was now conquered by China during this mess that is COVID. They have, we've lost Hong Kong. It's very sad to see. It's really sad to see. And now it's gotten the green stamp by China. The tech Chinese monopolies are now using that because it now has the approval of Beijing. And now they're, you know, they're pumping money through Hong Kong. Very sad to see. Got a lot of friends who are leaving uh, and just kind of in disarray about what to do. So now we saw this. House passes bill to grant temporary refuge for Hong Kongers in the U.S. I love this. I think this is a great initiative. I fully support this. We need to do everything that we can, albeit it's somewhat limited what we can do at this point. The damage, for the most part, has been done. But this is giving kind of special status to Hong Kong, folks from Hong Kong that are in the U.S. that can't go back to Hong Kong, rightly so. And it's trying to put more protocols in place uh, for people that are trying to flee Hong Kong and need somewhere else to go. Britain earlier this year offered a bespoke route to citizenship for Hong Kong residents holding the British national overseas status available to those born before Hong Kong's transfer of sovereignty from Britain to China in 1997. This has not been passed in the United States, um, but hopefully it does. And we need to try and do um, something to help these poor folks. The last thing that we're seeing on particularly this point about getting bolder, when it comes back to tech, we are seeing, we are seeing China weaponize and leverage technology in such profound ways. I mean, I got to give them credit. We talk about the 50 Cent Army on the show. We talk about how we've been a target of the 50 Cent Army. The 50 Cent Army is literally hundreds of thousands of people in China employed by the CCP that that go and post comments on content platforms outside of China like YouTube, TikTok, etc. and they post comments to influence people's opinions about China in a favor in a positive way. So if we do we did a video on TikTok, you know, that was not positive about China, 
And then we started to get flamed with all of these 50 Cent Army posts. And it's well documented. You can look back in some of our clips about it. <clears throat> so they are using LinkedIn to try and recruit spies in the United States. Watch, watch this clip. You wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal and you say China is targeting members of Congress with six times the frequency of Russia and 12 times the frequency of Iran. What is behind Beijing's aggressive approach? So they want laws and policies out of the United States that are favorable to China. And what they're really trying to do is through blackmail, through bribery, through overt and covert influence, trying to make sure that only laws that are favorable to China are passed. Have you been to Capitol Hill and have you briefed this threat information to lawmakers? I was so troubled by what I saw from the position as the Director of National Intelligence that I went and briefed both the House and Senate Intelligence Committees on this information, which they found surprising and troubling. We gotta get smart, America. You wanna know who our real competitor is? China. Want to know who my child's competitor is going to be? China. They're very smart. They're very hungry. They're very driven. They're very motivated. They are outflanking us almost every step of the way. We got to wake up to this. I'll go back to just a little story here. In this book, this book won the bilingual award of the year at this really, you know, to do Chinese publication. And I went to Beijing. I was in the belly of the beast. This was probably maybe two or three years ago. It's called the Yikai. Yikai, I guess, is one of the preeminent kind of like media publications, uh, journalist publications in China. Um, it was the Yikai, guess what? JP Morgan Conference. Flying to Beijing. I'm there. It's like a six hour session. You got 400 people. I'm literally the only white guy that doesn't speak Mandarin. They've got a trans, two translators switching on and off, basically just for me. Everyone else in the room are top government officials, academics, um, and economists. And all they're talking about is basically how to compete with the United States. This was two or three years ago. And they broke it down on three wavelengths. I was shocked sitting there witnessing this. Three wavelengths, very smart. One, military. Makes sense. Not only is China propping up its own military, China is now exporting its military systems to other governments that are friendly with China. Number two is economically. We're seeing this with the Belt and Road Initiative. We're seeing this with subsidies to Huawei. And that goes, brings me to the third point, technology. Very smart about technology. They understand you know, economic subsidies to Huawei on the hardware tech, software tech. They understand it brilliantly. Look at the 50 cent army. Look at what they're doing to promote you know, uh, tech platforms operating internationally, spreading their influence. Very smart. They understand what they're doing. We need to get smarter and we need to stop kind of getting distracted by all the things that are here dividing us uh, and really come together. Because if we don't, yeah, we got big issues, not just for my generation, but the generations to come. 
And the last point I'll make on this, and then I'm going to play this clip here, is when it comes to the military and technology components coming together, the Great Firewall, these guys literally monitor every bit of data coming in and out of that country. Think about our companies in the United States getting hacked. And we basically have no kind of digital infrastructure to do anything about it. They've got a, a great firewall. They monitor everything coming in and they monitor all the um, usage once you're in the country. Not saying we should do the same thing, but they're exporting that tech to other countries. It's already in Russia. It's already in parts of Africa. And it's going to other totalitarian, communist-friendly governments. This is happening. So, this doesn't need to get partisan. This isn't about, you're going about to see who's playing this video. I would have, the video is the video. It doesn't matter who's playing the video. This has nothing to do with partisanship. All this has to do with is that we need to wake up and really understand what is going on and, and how China knows that we're the number one competitor to them. Watch this. This video was deleted from Chinese social media soon after being uploaded, and there's a reason for that, as you'll see. There it is. Check it out. What does the subtitle say? It's because we have people at the top. Top of what, might you ask? <laughs> at the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence. This guy doesn't get on stage and say this stuff by accident. This stuff is never a coincidence. Absolutely the case. And I think every American, doesn't matter if you're American, what country you stand for, right? If you have elected officials in office, they need to have the best interests of the people in the country in mind. Period. Wouldn't that be the, the, shouldn't that be the expectation? Not a partisan thing here. But we, we're getting so distracted from the real challenges at mind. And it's really unfortunate to see. Um, China knows what they're doing. They absolutely have penetrated myriad of officials in our government, in our federal government, in our state governments, in our local governments with money. And he goes on to talk about basically how they use money with Wall Street. Because Wall Street, again, Wall Street wants profits. Wall Street wants growth. And, you know, if you were to ask, if you were to ask the CEOs of the top 100 American companies, something need to be done about China. Behind closed doors, every single one of those people would tell you yes. Publicly, they can't say that. Probably because many of them actually have business in China. Behind closed doors, they would say, absolutely. doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on politically in this country or abroad. If you're here for freedom, 
The civil civil liberties that we cherish in this country and many other countries also share in and promote. This is going to be a multi-decade back and forth. And we need to get smart about it and understand the role that technology plays in all of this. Technology as it relates to military. Technology as it relates to tech monopolies. Technology as it relates to uh, you know um, tech infrastructure, hardware infrastructure. We got to get smart about it. We got to get smart fast, and we got to have <clears throat> officials that have the best interests of this country in mind, uh, and not their pocketbooks or their relatives' pocketbooks in mind. That's why I'll leave it with you today. Thanks for joining us on Winner Take All. Talk to you soon.